Hello. Hello. And welcome to another episode of Tacos and Tequila. I'm Peyton. I'm Sydney. And we have another old case for you guys today. <laughs> yes. I was just telling Sydney before we hit record, we've done some crazy long ones. And with our schedules the last like week or so, I was like, oh, let's do like a shorter one. And then I started diving into this case and was like, this is not a shorter one. <laughs> I don't think it'll ever work out that way. <laughs> uh, maybe eventually. <laughs> We will never be able to plan for a short episode. (laughs) Literally. Well, and just because the case we are talking about happened so long ago, it's literally almost 100 years ago. I was like, okay, maybe there won't be as much information, but it's actually a very historical case. Mm -hmm. And I never actually heard of it before until I stumbled upon this list of like top five Michigan cases in history. Which was wild. So, yeah. Anything else to add before we just dive into it? No, I don't think I have anything. Sweet. Well, let's get started. On May 18, 1927, a school in Bath Township, Michigan, saw an attack that to this day is considered the most deadly school massacre to ever exist in U.S. history. There were several explosions that day that left many dead, including the perpetrator. Some cases leave quite a mystery, but in this one, we know the reason why this attack happened, who did it, and the plan that unfolded for nearly a year prior to it. Almost 100 years later, and this case is nearly forgotten in history, but let us tell you this story. I will also give a trigger warning because... As mentioned, this does happen at a school, so I think it's uh, important to note that it is, like, school-aged children that are involved in this case. I will also say that I don't go a lot into depth on that actual part, just because it's a lot. Let's, I guess, give a little background on the area and history before diving into the events of that day. Bath Township, still in existence today, is located just north of the city of East Lansing. And for those of you who don't know, that's where Michigan State University is located. In the 1920s, this area was primarily agricultural land, so lots of farms. Even now, it's pretty heavy, like, farmland. And a big part of that is because Michigan State is such an agriculturally-based school. There was lots of debating that took place in the area, and finally at a 1922 election, it was approved to create Bath Township Consolidated Schools. This was extremely controversial at the time because the creation of the school would cause a major hike in property taxes for those living in the township. Obviously, a lot of the people in the area were against this because they didn't want to see their taxes increase, which could potentially lead to a financial strain. Andrew Kehoe was one of the people very against the creation of the board, or of the school. He was a prominent Bath Township citizen. A little history on him, 
He was born in Tecumseh, Michigan, and was one of 13 children. He went on to go to school at Michigan State University, where he studied electrical engineering, and he actually owned one of the nicer farms in the Bath Township area. However, before he owned the farm, he had lived in St. Louis for a while and worked as an electrical engineer there. Eventually, he moved back home to his father's farm, and not long after, his mother died. His father married a much younger woman, Frances Wilder, not long after his mom died, and they ended up having another child together. On September 17, 1911, Frances was lighting the family's oil stove, and it exploded, setting her on fire. Andrew attempted to put out the flames with a bucket of water, but since it was oil-based, it just caused the fire to spread more. Her injuries were fatal, and she died the next day, and a lot of people actually suspected that Andrew intentionally set the fire, which I was like, damn, that's freaking wild. (laughs) Yes, thank you for mentioning that, because I also saw that and was like, yo, he just killed his stepmom, what the hell? Well, so, and we'll get into, like, a lot of what people said about him in a little bit, too, but a lot of things that people said, like, they had a lot of nice things to say about who he was as a person. Well, I think it was pretty 50-50, but a lot of people did have nice things to say about him, and just, like, prior to the events that take place, it was really unsuspecting. But then to, like, read that there was potentially something else in his past, I was like, oh, that's fucking wild. (laughs) Yes, it was definitely, like, on both ends of the spectrum. Like, everyone loved him, and, like, there was some sketchy things, too, which I'm sure you'll get into. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, in 1912, Andrew married Ellen Price, known as Nellie, and he was at the age of 40 at this time. Seven years later, in 1919, they moved to Bath Township, and they had their own farm, and Andrew became really involved in the community. He was a Bath Township clerk. He was appointed temporarily in 1925, but he actually lost in 1927 at the election, and he was trying to be reelected at the time. In 1924, he ran for school board and won, where he was elected to a three-year term and was appointed as treasurer for one year. And that's exactly what he wanted, so he was really thrilled. He was very openly against that school being built, and he wanted to keep a close eye on its finances to ensure the tax money was being utilized properly. So as mentioned, you know, he could be a kind person at times, and there were very mixed reviews on him, we'll say. But a lot of people described him as super argumentative, and those who worked closely with him described him as difficult to work with. Most of his neighbors, it seemed like, had pretty nice things to say about him. But anyone who worked with him when he was a clerk for the township or on the school board basically said they were not fans. He fought against the rest of the school board and voted against them often. He was constantly arguing over how money was spent, even for, like, the most necessary items in the classrooms he was very against. And he often made sure everyone knew that he paid too much in taxes. 
he wanted the valuation of his property redone to consider a lower amount in taxes. And he was described as extremely frugal. Which frugal itself, I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. I just like want to clarify. Um, But I think it was to the point where he made everyone he ever spoke with like well aware of his predicament (laughs) with this township and the school. Basically, several compounding things in Andrew's life led to what would be known as the Bath Township disaster. First, his election loss in April 1926 for that township clerk rule made him feel very rejected by his peers and his community. I think at that point he realized he was not very well liked and it was really off-putting to him. In June of 1926, so just a couple months later, he was notified that his home and farm were also in foreclosure, which he obviously greatly blamed for the increase in property taxes. And at that point, he had already stopped paying them anyways, which is why it went into foreclosure. Finally, his wife, Nellie, was in failing health. It sounds like I... I can't find, I couldn't find confirmation that she did 100% have tuberculosis, but it did sound like she spent a lot of time in the hospitals and sanatoriums, which would point that she did have TB. And at that time, as we mentioned in the Eloise case, we know there wasn't like a real cure at the time. All of these things in Andrew's life, plus adding that, looking back, he probably had quite a few psychopathic tendencies led him to start planning his revenge massacre for roughly a year. In the next year, Andrew began buying explosives. I want to point out that he did all of this legally, which was like the craziest part to me, I guess. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? It's super wild, but I mean, I guess being electrician, like being an electrician, you would think that you would have some of that yeah, knowledge. I guess that's what I was thinking. Yeah, and I definitely think his like knowledge and all of that helped. Also, back in the 1920s, got to think this is, like I said, almost 100 years ago, farmers could actually easily obtain dynamite because they used it to clear stumps from their property or anything like that. So they actually could trace back some of the explosives to the Farm Bureau office in Jackson, where they were actually purchased in the fall of 1925. Kehoe purchased 500 pounds of dynamite at that time from Jackson, Michigan, legally. Which is like a fuck ton. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a lot. And in November of 1926, some more were purchased from a sporting goods store in downtown Lansing. And it's like, oh, okay. It seems seems like a weird place to buy dynamite. Yes. Later on, they actually suspect um, there was some dynamite also stolen from, like, a construction site. And they actually suspected Andrew also stole that because it was just such a large amount and they couldn't trace all of it back. At 
this point in time, he really also stopped taking care of his farm. Uh, many neighbors reported that they actually feared he was planning on killing himself. He failed to harvest his crops in the fall of 1926, and he really stopped maintaining his land completely. He even gave away some of his animals to his near nearby neighbors, which I feel like is a big sign. Like, it's a red flag. <laughs> Anytime people start giving away, like, their personal items. A hundred percent red flag. Yes. So it's really not determined at like what point in time Andrew laid the explosives in the school that he had been gathering, but he did have a few times of unrestricted access. In the summer of 1926, the school was empty for summer vacation, obviously, and Andrew had access then. He also was often on school property and since he had an electrical engineering degree and was still a member of the school board, he was often asked to help perform maintenance on the school. And he would be down, you know, in the basement or the boiler rooms or anything like that, helping check everything out. In fact, on the day of May 18th, he was stopped that morning and asked to look at the school's plumbing. And he was there way prior to school starting and ended up leaving one of the other board members there rushing out, which I thought was, like, kind of fucking wild. Prior to May 18th, Andrew also loaded the back of his pickup truck with various metal debris that he thought would be capable of shrapnel in an explosion. He purchased new tires for his truck to ensure it would carry everything from his home to the school without breaking down. A woman who lived next to the school, actually, uh, her name was Ida Hall, had reported to a family member that she saw a lot of suspicious activity around the school in that month of May. There were vehicles coming and going at night, and she also saw a man carrying stuff into the school in the cover of dark a few times, like a few separate nights. However, she reported it to a family member, but never the police to inform them or check it out. So the events that happened, as mentioned, you know, planning was taking place way before May 18th. One of the other things that took place prior to May 18th, Nellie, Andrew's wife, was discharged from a hospital in Lansing on May 16th. It is not confirmed when Andrew killed her, but she was killed sometime between her discharge and the first explosions that would later take place. May 18th, 1927, around 8.30, 8.45 a.m., Andrew Kehoe detonated homemade pyrotol firebombs in his home and his farm buildings, causing debris to fly into one his knee one of his neighbor's poultry's brooding houses. So, obviously, the neighbors were pretty well aware right after it happened. As I mentioned about dynamite being, like, easily accessible, pyrotol was an explosive available for purchase at many military surplus stores after World War I and was also used by farmers in combination with dynamite to clear property. It was later discontinued in 1928, and just a, like, little side fun fact, 
I Googled it to get information on it. And the little summary that pops up explains it's most famous for this bath school disaster and being used then. So I was like, oh, shit. That's scary. Agreed. (laughs) So as mentioned, neighbors saw this explosion at Andrew's home pretty quickly and the fire that was spreading. So neighbors rushed to his home and began to enter it to try to pull out any potential survivors. And when finding no one was inside, they decided to salvage any furniture they could before the fire spread into the living room, thinking that they're, like, doing a favor for their neighbor, Andrew Kehoe, right? Well, while they're in there, one of the neighbors, O.H. Bush is the name, discovered dynamite in the corner, and he actually grabbed an armful of the explosives and handed it to one of the men to help get it out of the house. Which is, like, wild. (laughs) But, also, you got to think, if that fire spread to that dynamite, it could have taken out even more and caused even more damage to the volunteers in that area. Before leaving the scene of his home, Andrew, who was in his truck at this time, advised some of the volunteers that were outside that they should get to the school immediately. And then he drove off in his pickup truck. Which is, like also very wild. Later on, his wife, Nellie, would be found behind the farm's chicken coop in a wheelbarrow surrounded by silverware and a metal cash box. It was in a heavily charred condition after the explosion took place on the farmhouse. At the school, classes began at 8.30 a.m. Just on a side note, when I was reading this, At this point in time, this area was still using Central Standard Time. So I thought that was pretty interesting because Michigan's Eastern Standard Time. That's really interesting. I saw, I don't know if it was like the Michigan government or like the U.S. government, but they basically ruled in like 1818 that Michigan would be part of the Eastern Standard Time. And just like they never abided by it. Just did whatever they wanted. Yeah. They called it railroad time or bath time. (laughs) So, like, interesting. it says 8.30 a.m., but I'm not sure if that's Eastern Standard Time or Central Standard Time. So, just, like, a little side note that I thought was really weird and interesting. um, Because, you know, history, man. (laughs) Learn something new every day. Same. (laughs) Well, around 8.45 a.m., an alarm clock Andrew planted with all the pyrotol and dynamite set off the explosion in the north wing of the school. Fire rescuers on their way to Andrew Kehoe's farm actually heard the explosion and instead detoured and headed right towards the school. I have some eyewitness and survivor accounts that were interviewed from newspaper reporters. Um... First grade teacher Bernie Sterling told a reporter that the explosion was like an earthquake. She said, the air seemed to be full of children and flying desks and books. Children were tossed high in the air. Some were catapulted out of the building. Eyewitness Robert Gates said the scene was pure chaos at the school. 
He said mother after mother came running into the schoolyard and demanded information about her child, and on seeing the lifeless form lying on the lawn, sobbed and swooned. In no time, more than a hundred men were at work tearing away the debris from the school, and nearly as many women were frantically pawning over the timber and broken bricks for traces of their children. I saw more than one woman lift clusters of bricks held together by mortar heavier than the average man could have handled without a crowbar, which like just goes to show. And I'm sure you've heard this, but like in extreme situations and the adrenaline pumping, how like people have superhuman strength. I can't imagine what like those moms were feeling. Yes, they just needed to find their children and were like ripping bricks off. Fly, I just imagine bricks flying in the air, throwing them Literally. backwards. Literally. Um, Monty Ellsworth, he was an eyewitness who actually later went on to write a book about the incident. He that His book that he self-published was actually the first book ever published about this, but it was not the last. He recalled that there is a pile of children about five or six under the roof. He volunteered to drive back to the farm and get a rope heavy enough to pull the school roof off the children's bodies. At this point, the roof had kind of been leveled essentially to the ground. So that's why when he was returning to his farm, he saw Andrew Kehoe driving in the opposite direction, heading towards the school. In his account and from his book, he says that Andrew grinned and waved his hand as he was passing Ellsworth, and he said when he grinned, he could see both rows of his teeth, as in, like, it was the biggest smile he's ever seen, which is creepy. I don't know how else to explain that, (laughs) except, like, creepy, psychopathic. (laughs) When Andrew arrived to the school, it was about a half an hour after the initial explosion had happened, He drove up and he summoned Superintendent Hayek over to his car. That's my guess how you say his last name. Um, It's (laughs) H-U-Y-C-K. Hayek? Hayek? Yeah, I don't know. Hayek? Don't add us, people. We already know we're really bad at pronouncing names. An eyewitness saw the two men struggling with something which actually turned out to be a long gun and then Kehoe shot the gun detonating the firebomb in his car also keep in mind I don't know how to like word this but the second explosion from his car also like produced all the shrapnel that he was gathering in the trunk or the bed of his truck so that second explosion immediately killed Andrew Kehoe himself the superintendent he had been arguing with over the gun. Uh, a retired farmer standing nearby who was helping at the scene. His name was Nelson, McFer- Nelson McFerrin. And an eight-year-old boy, Cleo Clayton, who actually survived the first explosion of the school and had wandered outside. The shrapnel from the truck explosion also caused damage to cars in the surrounding half-a-mile area which is insane how massive that was. It caused some of those cars to even catch on fire. And it injured a dozen others and actually even fatally wounded the postmaster, Glenn Smith, 
who lost a leg due to the shrapnel and died at the hospital the next day. There was also dynamite and explosives found in the south wing as well, and it was found during the search rescue, which had actually never detonated. So as mentioned, it happened, their explosion in the school happened in the north wing. If the south wing had also detonated, there surely would have been no survivors at the school. It was an additional 500 pounds of dynamite found underneath the south wing. When they were going through the search and rescue, the Michigan State Police halted the search and made sure they disarmed all the devices. As I mentioned, Andrew had hooked up a, an alarm clock to the bombs that he was detonating on the north wing and set it for a certain time. He also did the same thing on the south wing, and they suspected a short circuit from the initial explosion actually prevented the second set of bombs detonating. So that could have potentially saved hundreds more of lives. In total, there were 45 people killed, including 38 children and Andrew himself. Dozens more were injured. I think the initial report was more than 40 people in the explosion itself were eventually transported to the hospital for injuries. So this is why that is considered the most deadly school attack. I do have some information about the search and rescue as well and like the aftermath, which as much of a tragedy as this is, I think it's really important to kind of talk about this because the one thing that really stuck out to me was like the whole community really gathered behind everyone and instantly was like supporting this whole Bath Township area. So phone operators stayed at their stations for hours and they literally called anyone who might help at the school and included local doctors, undertakers, area hospital workers, and anyone else they could think of. The Lansing Fire Department sent several firefighters, including its chief, a local doctor and his wife, who was also a nurse. They both served in World War I and they owned a local drugstore. They turned their drugstore into a triage center for the wounded, and the town hall was used as the morgue temporarily. Hundreds of people worked day and night trying to clear the wreckage and rescue as many children as they could. And these are just like not, you know, just like locals and everything like that, but it's just random people in the neighborhood or in that town. Michigan State Police officers also arrived and they managed traffic to and from the scene. I just want to point out that I'm literally reading and doing all this research and that's all I read. Oh, they managed traffic to and from the scene. Okay. One of the things that's, yeah, that's like my, you laughed. That's literally like, okay, that's <laughs> what they're good for. Cool. They're just conducting traffic outside. Like, what the fuck? Well, and I'll get into it in a minute, but I guess, like, it could have potentially been a big deal. But Michigan Governor Fred W. Green, he had only been elected, I think, just, like, a few months before, like, got into office. And our Capitol building is located in Lansing. So, obviously, not too far from Bath Township. The governor himself came to the scene the day of the 
explosion and assisted in the relief work. He was literally carting bricks away from the scene, using wheelbarrows, doing physical labor to try and help rescue as many people as possible. I had never heard of this governor before or actually this incident until I came across it a couple weeks ago. But not only that, but like this man was actually pretty well off. He got pretty wealthy in like the furniture industry, I guess. And he personally offered to pay for as many funerals as he could. He said, like, for any families of victims who could not afford a funeral, he will gladly pay it on his own. Which I thought was, like, very impressive. You just kind of don't see that. You don't see that anymore. (laughs) No, not at all. And Michigan's, you know, got a long history of crappy governors. So, (laughs) you know... Please At least we know there was water. one good one. There was one good yes. one. Yes, yes, so that's my point. So the entire community, as I mentioned, really banded together, providing and doing what they could, whether it was with the rescue efforts or even local restaurants were providing food to all those so they could work tirelessly day and night. Police and fire officials gathered at the Kehoe farm to investigate those fires as well and try to, you know, wrap up the investigation as quickly as they could. They had searched for Nellie, Andrew's wife, throughout, like, all of the state of Michigan, thinking she was at a tuberculosis sanatorium. And then her charred remains were found the day after the disaster. All of the Kehoe farm buildings were destroyed. And they actually found two horses that had burned to death trapped inside the barn. This is really messed up, but, like, just to go and show how much of a psychopath this man really could have been. Their two horse carcasses were found with their legs hobbled together with wire, which prevented them from escaping or running when the farm's buildings blew up and caught fire. So basically he did it on purpose to make sure that they did, the horses didn't get away either. Which I thought was like really dark. Pretty fucked up. Yes. Investigators found a wooden sign wired to the farm's fence with Kehoe's last message on it was stenciled the words, criminals are made, not born. That is the only note he ever really left. The American Red Cross also set up operations at the local drugstore eventually and assisted with providing aid and comforting victims. They also managed donations sent to pay for both the medical expenses of survivors and burial costs of the dead. In a few weeks, $5,284.15 was raised, which is actually the equivalent to over $78,000 today, closer to like $79, which I thought was pretty impressive. A large chunk of this was actually from the Clinton County Board of Supervisors and Bath Township sat in Clinton County and the Michigan legislator itself. So a lot of the government, like, or government officials donated money, which I thought was, again, a very big deal. The disaster received nationwide coverage in the following days and eventually would make worldwide headlines. Uh, A couple things I saw that just were really interesting. One, schools all across the U.S. and even in, like, Italy 
I saw was listed, but in Europe and everything, they were like classrooms were sending cards to the kids from the school and the survivors, like supporting them and all this stuff. I just thought it was really impressive. I don't know, Sydney, when you were a kid, do you remember like sending cards to like other schools or sick kids or anything like that? Yes. So you had like pen pals and then I don't remember doing like sick kids, but I know we had like pen pals at another school like in the area. Okay. Feel like we did do not sick kids. But something where, like, we sent them somewhere else, too. But I don't remember yeah. what for. I can't really remember either. But I know, like, where we sent, like, a condol... Like, maybe it was, like, um some sort of disaster that happened. And we sent, like, a card to that area or that school or yeah. something. Yeah. So I just thought it was really impressive because, I mean, the, these cards were coming from not only all over the U.S., but Europe. So, I mean, it, it. this is 1927. It made worldwide headlines. That's pretty crazy, the fact that that could travel that far in the t- 1920s. Yes. And in fact, the bath disaster, the only reason it pushed off the front headlines was... <laughs> One of the biggest news events of the early 20th century, Charles Lindbergh's historic flight from New York to Paris. That was it. That was the the only, like, other story that kind of connected or, like, overshadowed this in, like, Michigan or nationwide. And just, like, a little fun fact that I saw, because, you know, I like to go down rabbit holes. Um... Charles Lindbergh actually really has strong Michigan ties, which I never knew. He was born in Detroit, and his great uncle was John Lodge. And for any of those in the metro Detroit area, you say you hear John Lodge and you think the Lodge Freeway. Yes, the Lodge Freeway was named after Charles Lindbergh's great uncle. Interesting. So, yeah. You just and have all the facts today. Yes, I'm so it's so wild to me. His Charles Lindbergh's mom actually was a chemistry teacher at Detroit Cass Tech High School, and I know people who graduated from there. So mm. I'm like, I just thought that was really interesting because I'm sure anyone listening to True Crime knows the Charles Lindbergh baby story, yes, or at least that conspiracy theory story. Um. <laughs> And so I thought that was really interesting. That's like another Michigan tie while we're talking about a Michigan case. Just a little lighthearted side note. Sorry, guys. Got it in a tangent. <laughs> so Andrew Kehoe's body was claimed by one of his sisters. And they actually buried him in an unmarked pauper's grave in St. John's, Michigan. They did not want to bury him in the family plot, which I don't blame them. No, not at all. I wouldn't want that either. Nellie's body was recovered and buried by her family in Lansing under her maiden name of Price. And the rest of the funerals began on Friday, just two days after the disaster, and continued through Saturday and Sunday. The school was eventually rebuilt, and 
the money was provided by a senator, James Cousins, who made his money in the automotive industry originally before running for the Michigan Senate. He donated the money and it was named James Cousins School. However, in 1975, they ended up tearing down the school and putting a park there itself. This was at the original site of the Bath School disaster. After lots of debate in 1991, a Michigan State historical marker was installed at the park where the school used to be. And when they made the park itself in 75, it was dedicated to the victims. However, it just keeps adding on. And in 2002, a bronze plaque was officially installed on a large stone near the entrance of the park listing the names of those killed in the disaster. Which I think is really interesting. And I just like, that's like really all my big heavy facts. But the reason I think it's interesting is because I've never heard of this before. I know no, me I, neither. I was going to say, I know when I sent it to you, you hadn't either. But it's wild because it's still the greatest school disaster and massacre of all time. Yes, which you would think that it would be something that like everyone knew about if it's so big but I don't know apparently well, not. and you know you think of school massacres what's the first thing you think of mine's Columbine yeah Columbine Sandy Hook yeah or, Virginia yeah. Tech and um it's really crazy to think that this happened way before any of those and it's just like not common knowledge not only that but like the man who did all of this and got all of it he got it all legally at the time everything he did and all the materials he gathered he gathered it legally that's that's another good point just goes to show how like times change for sure Mm -hmm. they absolutely do One of the only other fun facts I have, actually I have two. So one's sad and one's kind of comical. So I'll leave it at this. I'll start with the sad one. So the bombing occurred the last week of school before summer vacation. And actually just one day before graduation ceremonies, some of those kids were set for commencement and um, they actually never celebrated. They didn't even do a school reunion until like more than 50 or that classes reunion until more than 50 years later when some of those kids finally got their diplomas wow yeah now the funny one i'll leave for us is um (laughs) so back in the 1920s there was a huge ku klux klan membership in michigan (laughs) And uh, about 15,000 of them marched down Michigan Ave in Lansing during Labor Day in 1924. And according to reports, even the Clinton County Sheriff was a reported Klan member. So, you know, great history here, Michigan. And um, apparently they aimed a lot of their anger at immigrants and Catholics in Michigan Apparently, after the Bath bombing, they printed up 5 million leaflets claiming 
Kehoe's Catholic upbringing caused the massacre, and they blamed Catholicism. Wow. Yeah. Well, but actually, fun fact, he was not a member of the church. Him and his wife, before they moved to Bath Township and they were still living in Tecumseh, they attended a Catholic church there. And when it built a new sanctuary and built all the participants and, like, members of the church, their shares, Andrew received his bill of $400 and left the congregation and never returned because he refused to pay. So... He wasn't even considered a member of the church. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I said I had two facts. I actually have three. Sorry, 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 sorry. I mentioned that the Michigan State Police directed traffic. Um, the reason I, I guess, like, I first I was like, what the hell? Like, that's dumb. Um, but I guess it attracted a lot of visitors and I'm trying to find my note for it, but I can't really find the specific one I was looking for, but basically just like a lot of the old cases, like there's like a lot of people who want to like stare and, um, view the scene of like grisly crimes which I think is like super messed up but it's the same reason if you see like a car accident you're staring when you drive by I guess oh yeah we still do that today and I think oh yeah most of it is because you know they didn't have social media and stuff like nowadays they post like the crime scenes on social media so you can look at them that way but they would have to drive to go see it themselves back in the day oh yeah well and they did apparently within like the week or so after the explosion, they had quadrupled the number of visitors in Bath Township than they usually did. Wow. So, like, massive amounts of people were driving to see the farmhouse and to drive past um, the school and what remained of the school. That's crazy. Yeah. Which is... I mean, it's sad because, like, they said a lot of people in the community were like, just let us grieve, which I get. Mm-hmm. But also, I guess it kind of makes sense. You hear a lot of old stories like this where that happens. It's very true. Okay, anything you want to add since I just ranted for 40 plus minutes? Yes, <laughs> I do have a couple of things to mention that you didn't okay. talk about. So... Kehoe, I know you had mentioned um, the belief of him possibly murdering his stepmom with that stove, but there's also other examples of him um, going on kind of a violent streak. He had killed his sister's cat. He had killed his neighbor's dog because it buried a bone near his property, and he was even reported beating his own horse to death. Wild, literally psychopathic tendencies. Yes. And these are like, you know, two of these events had happened when he was younger and then two had happened like in his adult life. So they were kind of just all around his life that he was being very violent. Um, There was also a mention which 
it kind of went back and forth, but then I had read another report that kind of seemed to finalize this for me, that he was seen in town on the day of the bombings um, going to mail a package, and that was actually why he had gone to the school or was, like, summoned to the school in the morning to go look at the boiler or whatever he would, had been doing there. Um, later on, after the bombings had actually taken place, they were able to find out what that package he was going to mail was. And it was a letter stating that he had made a mistake when he was doing the school's books as treasurer and that basically the, the books would be off by a few, few cents. And he also was resigning from the school board. Wild. Thank you for going in depth <laughs> about that because I kind of brushed over it when I read it too, but. Well, because so I was like really fascinated by the fact that he had like seen and been seen in town that morning and then it was like that some of the articles kind of like brushed off on oh yeah he was in town around 8 30 he'd gone into the school he left abruptly and then I finally found a couple articles that were like saying like there was a letter he had gone to send that's why he had been in town there wasn't reasoning behind it so I had to mention that <laughs> well thank you um I thought I had one more but Oh, I guess just another, like, little side note um, fact, kind of a sad fact, but just, like, how this had been one of the largest um, or the largest mass murderer in a school. Um, his little suicide bombing that he had done in his truck was considered to be the first, if not one of the first of the time. Um, those were really, like, kind of unheard of in the early 1900s. So it was interesting to see that that, you know, those suicide bombings, I feel like now are very common. And these were unheard of back in those times. Yeah, I guess that's also a really good point. Wow, didn't even think about that. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to bum everyone out with this like heavy ass case. It's a good one, though. And I think it is something that, you know, we don't talk about. I'll bet you a lot of people have never heard of this. Oh, for sure. It's considered to be such an important piece of history that people should know about it. Absolutely. And I definitely think it helped um, install, like, a lot of regulations to further down the road on, like, I know, like I mentioned, the not the dynamite itself, but what was it? pyrotol was like taken off the shelves in 1928 and dynamite was eventually obviously like regulated and stuff too so I think that was like a huge importance yeah absolutely all right well that's all I've got Sydney you want to less bum us out with a joke sure so um (laughs) Shout out to my mom for this. One day she just texted me a bunch of jokes and thought she was the funniest person ever. But this one actually <laughs> is really funny. Um, why did NASA launch a flying burrito into space? Why? To intercept the flying salsa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like that one. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. That was a good one. You're on a roll here, man. <laughs> right? Last week was funny. Last week was real funny. <laughs> um, I have a fact, too. Okay, yeah. Hit me with it. 
So tequila should be drank room temperature, which literally disgusts me to even think about. So that way you can experience the aroma and flavors properly. If you serve it too cold, you're not able to smell any of those or get those features that you're supposed to with tequila, similar to whiskey, which just sounds fucking disgusting to drink warm warm tequila, but okay. Um, Yes, it sounds really disgusting. I mean, that's a fun fact, but like a gross fact, a gross fact. (laughs) I was like gagging thinking about that earlier. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. But I don't also, I don't like tequila unless it's, like, in my margaritas. Same for the most part. Like, I would not, I don't choose to just take, like, shots of tequila. Same. If I, if anyone sees me out taking shots of tequila, either send me home or stay away from me. I don't know what to tell you, but, like, I'm not in a good place. (laughs) Call me an Uber, please. Yes, that would be ideal. (laughs) I probably don't belong there anymore. Uh. So, basically, we got some good news then for all of you people. Yes. So, this episode comes out the 28th of September. So, if you're listening, the day it comes out, Tuesday, in less than a week, October 4th, we finally are going to have some merch live for you October 4th is National Taco Day and we figured we'd reward our tacos and tequila listeners well I'm sure have it all over social media for you guys to look at and our website so find our website tacosandtequilapodcast.com you can also find us on Instagram at just tacosandtequila Facebook Tacos and Tequila Podcast. Or you could just send us an email at tacosandtequila at gmail.com and let us know what cases you want us to cover or just talk to us because you're bored. Yeah. And also, if you're on Apple Podcasts, please like and review us. Subscribe to us as well. Five-star reviews help us get noticed. It helps us get more potential listeners, and it only helps us keep getting better. So thank you all for your support. Yes, thank you so much. We have lots of cool merch. I just want to shout out Sydney. She's the one that's been handling the merch and working on it, uh, which I know is no easy task. So you see anything cool on there it is thanks to sydney with all her creative ideas if you guys have any ideas for me let me know because it was a struggle (laughs) yeah we don't know what our catchphrases are (laughs) doozy that's all it is just doozy literally (laughs) and i've been trying to stay away from saying doozies (sighs) well Thanks for giving us a listen, folks. And I guess we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.